hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. No matter your age... Unexpected vaginal bleeding is going to cause some anxiety, but it's really unsettling when it occurs years after your uterus and ovaries have closed for business and you no longer own a pad or a tampon. It's not just about making the midnight run for tampons. It's that stomach dropping fear that blood equals cancer that causes women to spend hours consulting Dr. Google for some reassurance. But in spite of the fact that most women imagine the worst, in the overwhelming majority of cases, postmenopausal spotting or bleeding is not, is not an indication of anything serious. Having said that, any bleeding that occurs more than 12 months after you've stopped menstruating, even if it's just spotting, should always get checked out. So by the end of this podcast, you will know all of the things that can cause postmenopausal bleeding and the steps a gynecologist takes to figure out why you're bleeding. And the first step is to determine where the blood is coming from. Most women assume that if they're bleeding, it's coming from inside the vagina, but that's not necessarily the case. Blood on the toilet paper, on your underwear, or in the toilet bowl might be coming from the vagina, but it also might be coming from the vulva, the rectum, or the bladder. And while sometimes the source is obvious, it's not always easy to know for sure where the blood is coming from. So when in doubt, start with a mirror and take a look at your vulva to see if anything on the outside is irritated or bleeding. If you don't see a source of bleeding on the outside, put a tampon in your vagina and leave it in for an hour or so. If the tampon stays white, then the blood you saw most likely came from the rectum or the bladder. But if the tampon is red, you still don't know if it's coming from the uterus, cervix, or the vaginal walls, but at this point, you can assume it's from one of those places, and you need to see a gynecologist so they can figure out the source. And the best time to see your gynecologist about abnormal vaginal bleeding is while you are bleeding. Obviously, if you're bleeding, it's easier for me to see where it's coming from, but in addition, I can also see how heavy it is. Yes, your description helps, but I've learned over the years that one woman's spotting is another woman's hemorrhage. And if you're hesitant to be examined while bleeding, trust me, it is routine, routine for me to examine women who are bleeding. I can't tell you how many times a woman comes to the office to check out bleeding that occurred weeks before her appointment. And the delay in her appointment wasn't that we couldn't get her in quickly. I always try and see women with postmenopausal bleeding as soon as possible, both because I don't want you to worry, but from a practical point, I can't see where it's coming from if it's no longer happening. But often women assume, they assume that an exam shouldn't happen while bleeding, which is a holdover from being told that you shouldn't have an annual exam if you're on your period. That rule may be true if you're getting a pap test, but if the reason for the visit is bleeding, don't wait for it to stop before coming in. Not only is it the only way for me to see where it's coming from and how heavy it is, but don't assume it's going to stop. 
I had a woman who pled every day for two months before she finally called to make an appointment because she was under the impression that I wouldn't see her if she was bleeding. By the time she finally came in, she was a total mess. And sure, she had some horrible gynecologic cancer, but her bleeding wasn't from a cancer. It was from a benign cervical polyp. Obviously, she was relieved, but she had two weeks of worry for nothing. Another patient who was perimenopausal and bleeding heavily from a uterine fibroid was severely anemic by the time she made it to my office. Bottom line, the last thing you should do is wait it out, especially if it's heavy. Once I put the spiculum in, and assuming you're still bleeding, I can usually tell immediately if the bleeding is coming from the vagina, the cervix, or the uterus. So let's say it's coming from the vaginal walls. There are three main reasons that can cause vaginal walls to bleed. Number one, and by far the most common thing I see in my menopause clinic, is dryness and thinning of vaginal tissue from the lack of estrogen, vaginal atrophy, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Not only can this dryness cause burning and painful sex, but in severe cases, the walls of the vagina get so inflamed that they actually bleed. Now, this most often occurs after sexual activity, but it can occur without anything going in the vagina. Also, on occasion, I've seen bleeding from women who scratch the vaginal wall while removing their estrogen ring. You might like the way long fingernails look, but it's not a great idea when it comes to putting fingers inside the vagina, which is one of the many reasons gynecologists keep their nails trimmed. The second cause of bleeding from vaginal walls are raging vaginal infections, such as yeast or bacterial vaginosis. Now, vaginal cancer is on the list, but it's really rare. I see women with abnormal vaginal bleeding pretty much every day in clinic. I've seen only two cases of vaginal cancer in the last 20 years. Having said that, most women don't see a gynecologist routinely after the age of 40 or 45. And even if you see an internist annually, it's the rare internist that routinely looks inside the vagina. There's this common misconception that if you don't need a pap test, you don't need a gynecologic exam. Well, 20% of vaginal cancers are completely asymptomatic at the time of diagnosis. That means if those women with asymptomatic cancer didn't have an exam, they would not have known they had vaginal cancer until they started to bleed, which would have meant it would have been at a more advanced stage. I'm not telling you this to scare you because it's rare. I'm telling you this to encourage you to have someone look inside your vagina every year, even if you do not need a pap test. This also goes for women who've had a hysterectomy who are told they don't need a gynecologic exam anymore. If you have a vagina and a vulva, someone needs to take a look. Okay, moving on up to the cervix. Bleeding originating from the cervix can occur if there's any kind of cervical inflammation. Sexually transmitted infections can cause cervical bleeding. So unless you've had zero sexual activity or are 1000% sure that both you and your current partner have been monogamous, if there's cervical bleeding, it's a good idea to be screened for chlamydia, gonorrhea, and trichomonas in addition to being up to date with your pap test. But by far, the most common cause of cervical bleeding I see in midlife women is from a benign cervical polyp that's either growing from the canal of the cervix or the surface of the cervix. If a polyp is visualized emerging through the cervical opening or is sitting on the cervix, it can usually be removed very easily on the spot. There's essentially no pain other than a tugging sensation 
and possibly some mild cramping. And while polyps are almost always not cancerous, they're still always sent to the lab for analysis just to make sure. Cervical cancer, of course, can also cause bleeding, but it's not a common cause, especially if you're up to date on your pap tests. If there are any areas of the cervix that look suspicious, a pap test and a tissue sample can be done in the office. If the bleeding is not coming from the vulva, not coming from the vaginal walls, and not coming from the cervix, then it's coming from the cavity of the uterus. Up to 11% of women will experience uterine bleeding postmenopause, and in over 90% of cases, it is not cancer. Not cancer. So now I'm going to run through the list of things that can cause bleeding from the uterus, from most likely to least likely, starting with polyps. Just like on the cervix, you can have benign polyps inside the cavity of the uterus. Polyps are mushroom-like benign growths that project from the surface of the uterine lining. And it's not unusual for someone to have multiple polyps. 10 to 20% of women will have polyps at some point in their lives. The most common time to have a polyp is in your 50s, but they can occur anytime after age 20. While most polyps are benign, Polyps that occur postmenopause are a little more likely to be cancerous than polyps in young women and therefore should be removed and sent for analysis. By the way, postmenopausal hormone therapy does not influence the formation of polyps and does it need to be stopped just because you are a polyp grower. Fibroids are a really common cause of bleeding in premenopause women, but are a relatively rare cause of bleeding in postmenopause women. And that's because fibroids, which are benign solid tumors that originate from the wall of the uterus, are dependent on hormones to grow. And postmenopause women aren't making any, which is why fibroids generally shrink after menopause, not grow. And if you're taking menopause hormone therapy, not to worry. Postmenopause hormone therapy does not stimulate fibroid growth or cause fibroids to bleed. So if you know you have fibroids and you're bleeding after menopause, do not assume the bleeding is from your fibroids. It needs to be checked out. Which brings me to the next possibility, and that's thinning and drying of the tissue that lines the uterine cavity. At this point, you are well aware that the lack of estrogen can cause vulvar and vaginal tissues to become thin and dry. But it turns out that this lack of estrogen can also cause the uterine lining inside the uterus to be thin and dry, which in turn can cause postmenopause bleeding. Now, at the other extreme, your ovaries may not have gotten the memo that they were done producing estrogen, and in spite of passing the 12-month mark, kick in for one last hurrah. These surprise periods generally occur immediately after you've tossed your remaining tampons and bought all new underwear. They also tend to occur in the first postmenopause year as to five or six years later. The tissue buildup from these hormonal surges is not abnormal. It's just unexpected. But sometimes there is an abnormal buildup of tissue in the lining of the uterus, which is known as endometrial hyperplasia. Endometrial hyperplasia is a condition in which the uterine lining gets excessively thick due to unopposed estrogen stimulation, meaning the uterine lining is being exposed to estrogen, but there's no progesterone to even things out. So what would cause that to happen? Well, this condition occurs in women who produce estrogen but don't ovulate and therefore have no progesterone to counteract the effects of estrogen on the uterine lining. 
pretty common in young women with PCOS and perimenopausal women who are still making estrogen but no longer ovulating. Postmenopause women who develop hyperplasia are often women who take estrogen without an appropriate progesterone. We see this primarily in women who are using compounded hormone therapy. So if you're in that club, check out my podcast on compounded hormones. Hyperplasia is also more commonly seen in obese women since estrogen is made in fat cells. Women who take tamoxifen for treatment or prevention of breast cancer are also at increased risk. But plenty of women develop hyperplasia without any of those risk factors. And by the way, women who take hormone therapy with the appropriate amount of progesterone have less hyperplasia and uterine cancer than is seen in the general population of women who do not take hormone therapy. There are different types of hyperplasia, and the type of hyperplasia determines the potential for developing uterine cancer down the road. In other words, not all hyperplasias are precancerous conditions. Hyperplasia without atypical cells means that no precancerous cells exist, and the progression to uterine cancer is extremely unlikely. Hyperplasia without atypia can be treated with medication or placement of a progesterone intrauterine device, a progesterone IUD, such as the Mirena IUD. Hyperplasia with atypical cells is more serious and is considered to be potentially precancerous. While treatment with medication is usually successful, 28% of women with atypical hyperplasia ultimately develop uterine cancer. And finally, yes, there is always the possibility that bleeding is from uterine cancer. Uterine or endometrial carcinoma is the fourth most common cancer in females in the United States and the most common gynecologic cancer. And I will do a podcast in the future on risk factors and prevention of uterine cancer. Right now, suffice it to say that uterine cancer is more common in postmenopausal women compared to premenopausal women. And for most, bleeding is an early warning sign. And because there is this early warning sign, as long as it's not ignored, uterine cancer is usually diagnosed in its early stages and has a really high cure rate. In fact, the five-year survival for women diagnosed with the stage one uterine cancer is 96%. And this is the number one reason you should never ignore bleeding post-menopause. While the most likely scenario is that it's not cancer, if it is cancer, you want to get your diagnosis while it's in its early, most treatable stages. So here's the breakdown of the approximate likelihood of each diagnosis when it comes to postmenopause bleeding from the uterus. 39% of the time, postmenopause bleeding is from a benign polyp. 31% of the time, postmenopause bleeding is because of thinning and dryness of the tissue in the cavity of the uterus. 14% of the time, postmenopause bleeding is from a hormonal surge causing a postmenopause period. 7% of the time, postmenopause bleeding is from uterine cancer or precancer. 6% of the time, postmenopause bleeding is from a fibroid. 2% of the time, postmenopause bleeding is from hyperplasia. So now I'm going to go through how to know, how to know if your bleeding is from a polyp, a fibroid, thin atrophic tissue, a late period, cancer, or precancer. Where generally I'm going to start with a transvaginal ultrasound. Ultrasound can identify fibroids, large polyps, and is the best way to measure the thickness of the uterine lining to make sure there's no abnormal buildup. In a menstruating woman, 
The lining should be thin in the first half of the cycle, between 4 and 8 millimeters, and thicker in the second half of the cycle, between 8 and 14 millimeters. But postmenopausal women, even if they take hormone therapy, should have very thin, inactive linings. A thickness greater than four millimeters means there's a buildup, which does not necessarily mean something bad is going on. It just means you can't ignore it. And I'll need to sample the tissue to see why there's a buildup. And I'm going to circle back to that in a second. But first, I want to talk a little bit about saline-infused ultrasound. Sometimes things sticking into the uterine cavity are not well seen on ultrasound since the cavity is only a potential space. Like a balloon that's not blown up, the walls of the uterus are collapsed together. Saline-infused sonography, also known as SIS or a sonohistogram, is an ultrasound that goes one step further by using sterile water to separate the walls of the uterus and better see things that are protruding into the cavity. In short, a sonohistogram allows a two-dimensional image to be seen in three dimensions. Fibroids and polyps pop into view, allowing for a much more accurate diagnosis than ultrasound alone. In one study, SIS, sonohistogram, was 93% accurate in finding uterine polyps as opposed to ultrasound, which only detected polyps accurately 65% of the time. Now, some centers now use a 3D ultrasound rather than a saline ultrasound to identify polyps and fibroids. The next step, particularly if the lining of the uterus is thick, is to sample some tissue from the inside wall of the uterus. Although the word biopsy is used, which obviously sounds scary, in this biopsy, there's no cutting and no needles involved. Most gynecologists refer to this procedure as endometrial sampling or aspiration, which sounds a lot friendlier than a biopsy. Pipel is the brand name for a type of catheter that's commonly used. So sometimes it's called a Pipel sample or a Pipel aspiration. No matter what you call it, the whole thing sounds terrifying, but it's actually not as bad as it sounds. In fact, if you've ever had an IUD inserted, this is almost always much quicker and much less painful. Basically, I put a speculum in the vagina so that I can see the cervix and then thread a very thin, flexible catheter through the cervical opening into the uterine cavity. Once the catheter is in the right place, I can gently suction any loose tissue from the surface of the uterine walls, which then gets sent to the lab for analysis. Now, as far as what you're going to experience during this whole thing, honestly, it's all over the map. Most women feel mild to moderate cramping. Some women feel nothing. They're not even aware that a sample is being taken. And then, yeah, there is the rare woman who has a lot of pain, but that's the exception, not the norm. And if you do have a hard time, it helps to know that the bad cramping almost never lasts more than about 30 seconds. It just seems longer. And sometimes I have women who ask me to stop. And unless I'm just a few seconds away from finishing, I'm going to stop. I'm not into torture. And there is always an option to do it with anesthesia if it's just too painful. But that's the exception. For 90% of women, the discomfort is very minimal and very quick. Keep in mind, the women in Facebook chat rooms who talk about how excruciatingly painful it is are the exceptions. Women who've had no pain or minimal pain usually are not the ones hanging out in Facebook chat rooms. The difficulty of this procedure is often directly related to how tight your cervical canal is. Someone who's had at least one vaginal delivery has a wider canal, so the whole thing is usually pretty easy. Someone who's never delivered vaginally may have a tighter cervical opening 
which can result in a little more cramping. Sometimes the cervix isn't straight or a uterus is tilted sharply forward or backward, which can also make the whole thing a little more difficult. 400 to 600 milligrams of ibuprofen an hour before the procedure is a good idea. Most women truly have minimal discomfort. And if there is pain, again, it's short-lived. All right, enough on that. Tissue from the uterine samples then sent to the lab where a pathologist analyzes it. The main goal, of course, is to make sure there are no cancerous or precancerous cells. But the pathologist also describes the tissue in terms of hormonal stimulation. Is there an estrogen effect, a progesterone effect? Occasionally, a piece of a polyp may show up. In most cases, between the ultrasound and the uterine sample, the cause of the bleeding can be determined. But in some cases, a DNC with hysteroscopy is needed. Dilatation and curatage, commonly known as a DNC, is a procedure in which the cervical opening is widened using a series of graduated pencil-like dilators. That's the dilatation part. The surface of the uterus is then scraped, that's the curatage part, with a rake-like instrument in order to sample lots of the tissue from the entire uterine cavity. A DNC is a blind procedure, meaning it's done by feel as opposed to me actually seeing inside the uterine cavity, which means that even in the best of hands, the most experienced of hands, a DNC can miss things. And that's why a DNC is now always done in conjunction with a hysteroscopy. A hysteroscope is a long, slender scope with a fiber optic light that's placed through the cervical canal and into the uterus, which means I can directly see if there's any polyps and fibroids. I can see if there's any worrisome spots that I want to take a sample from. And with some hysteroscopes, I can pass teeny instruments into the uterine cavity so I can do a biopsy or remove a polyp under direct visualization. And yes, you get drugs for this one. Some DNC hysteroscopies are done with local anesthesia, sometimes a little sedation, sometimes general anesthesia. So if you need a DNC hysteroscopy, talk to your doctor about the anesthesia plan. Now, DNC with hysteroscopy are not done routinely if there's postmenopause bleeding. DNCs are done if I don't get an answer from your ultrasound and office endometrial sample. So for example, if there's an inadequate tissue or the cervix is too tight to pass the catheter, I'm going to do a DNC. Or if someone doesn't tolerate the office procedure, I'm going to do a DNC. Also, a DNC hysteroscopy is done if I see a polyp or something else on ultrasound and I want to remove it. All women with hyperplasia with atypia should have a DNC in addition to the endometrial biopsy to get more tissue and assure that no early cancer cells are already present. So that's your whirlwind tour of what can cause postmenopause bleeding and the steps that should be taken to find out what's causing it. Between your history, a pelvic exam, an ultrasound, a sample of the lining of the uterus, and sometimes a DNC with hysteroscopy, you should definitely know if it's hormonal, a polyp, an abnormal buildup of tissue, precancer, or cancer. And then you can find out if it's something you can ignore or something that needs to be treated. Now, obviously, I didn't get into the specifics of all these things in terms of how to treat them, since the most important thing to start with is to know what's causing the problem. And if you only take one thing away from this podcast, it's that while the overwhelming majority of abnormal bleeding is not an indication of uterine cancer, don't put off that trip to the gynecologist and don't wait for the bleeding to stop. 
I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Bye.